We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please take your Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles this evening, chapter 6. Youngsters want to make their quick escape for truth trackers here. Feel free to do that. Second Chronicles and the 6th chapter, starting in verse 22. We left off here last time, <clears throat> excuse me, in our reading. Solomon's praying at the dedication of the temple. You remember David planned to build a temple. God said, your son will do it instead. Solomon took all the materials that uh, David had laid aside and probably then some and put together the temple in all of its glory as a dwelling place of God on earth, <clears throat> recognizing that God does not dwell in temples made with hands and... Uh, not even the heavens of heaven can contain him, so how much less this house that he's built. And he prays to God, asked uh, in verse 20 that his eyes would be open toward the temple, toward the place. May, may people who, who make supplication uh, there be heard from heaven, the dwelling place of God, and when you hear, forgive. And then verse 22, if anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar... In this temple, then hear from heaven and act, and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and return and confess your name, and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to them. And their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance." When there is a famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive. And give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done wrong, and have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, and their supplications, 
and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. The mercies of your servant David. Isaiah 55 mentions the sure mercies of David. I think it's a reference to the Davidic covenant. God making his promise to David and that passing on down to Solomon and to the other generations after him. Did you notice those two parenthetical statements? I don't know if your Bibles have them in parentheses. In verse 30 is one of them. And in verse number, which one is it? It was right down in here somewhere. I'm not going to find it now. There it is, 36. The first one in verse 30, For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. And verse 36, For there is no one who does not sin. Interesting to put those in parentheses, isn't it? Yeah, those are very important theological truths that uh, he is saying there. And boy, you can learn a lot from prayers, good prayers, can't you? And uh, that's what uh, we learn from Solomon's prayer, among other things. I, I noticed, too, it was interesting to me how he talked a lot about praying toward the temple. And then as, as the situation got, uh, became more broad in scope, then they were praying towards the city. And then when they were carried away to a faraway land, they were praying toward the land, so it probably was hard to pray with great precision if you're far away to that, you know, temple. But you could pray to the city or to, toward the land of Israel and kind of get the general direction right. Aren't you glad you don't have to pray in a certain direction? Some of us don't even know which way is north, west, east, or south in our own houses sometimes. We couldn't figure out which way to pray. God told the woman in John chapter 4, didn't he, that... Uh, it's not on this mountain that you worship, nor in Jerusalem, but God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. All over the globe is the implication. The location doesn't matter, and I'm thankful for that. Um, what, what can we say? Broadening of the scope of God's work in the world. So, All right, let's turn our Bibles uh, tonight to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in Matthew chapter 16. I hope I hear those pages turning on YouTube right now. For those of you that are listening on on the computer. Matthew 16. Um, Let me um, just make an introductory comment going back to what we looked at last time. In fact, maybe two times ago, we, we looked at Jesus asking, who do people say that I am? And they went through the whole, you know, Barna research polls and gave all the options, so to speak. And then Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus told him this was revealed to him, to Peter, from heaven. It did not come from his own cleverness or his own super uh, intellect. God, had, the Father, had revealed this to Peter, and that was a good thing. But then Peter turned around, and immediately when the Lord began to talk about his death and resurrection coming up shortly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And I said, it's too bad, uh, although he tried to take Jesus aside and do it privately, that it got recorded in Scripture because now it's not so private. Um, And and Jesus rebuked him sternly. And in, in doing that, he used these words in 1623. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. It seems like there's this common theme that's coming up, unplanned, honestly unplanned by me, that we've run into this, things of God, things of men, uh, things of heaven, earthly things this morning in our sermon in in Philippians chapter 3. God's trying to remind us that we need to be centered on things other than earthly things in our lives, but he really hammers Peter here, and it's interesting that Peter 
is almost within you know moments it seems perhaps it's hours but he's professing Christ as the son of God in one moment and then he's turning around and using his mouth for other purposes in, a, in another moment you remember what it says in James chapter 3 about the tongue no man can tame the tongue it's a, it's an unruly evil full of deadly poison and uh, it says that with it we do what we bless God and with it we curse the same tongue. Out of the same spring flows salt water and fresh. How is that? That's a frustration, isn't it? When your mouth gives off salt water for a while and then you want to clean it up and it, you give some fresh and then some salt. With it you complain and curse about people and then you... Bless God with it. Peter had the same disease that we have. You know, he blessed God and then he cursed God in effect here. Now, when we were reading here, I didn't focus on the on kind of a, 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 an exam. How can I say an explanation of this part of it? But I was I got a question afterwards. What exactly is Jesus doing or saying to Peter? Is Peter and Peter and Satan and all this, what, what's going on here? So the Lord had changed his focus to preparing the disciples for his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. What do I mean by that? I mean that he had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That comes to basically a screeching halt around the time of chapter 12. Chapter 13, he's preaching in parables, hiding the truth from those that don't want to believe him and revealing the truth to those that do want to believe him a very marvelous kind of teaching method that he uses. But he's, he's now moving into teaching them that I'm heading to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there. I'm going to rise again. There. I'm going to suffer there from the, from the Jews and from the Romans, and then I will rise again from the dead. And Peter, of course, did not like that whole idea. Uh, after all, I think I'll say later in my notes, but I can say it now since it fits so well. If you're Peter and you're the other disciples and you're your guy is going to suffer, what does that mean for you? That means things could get a little dicey. You know, if he's, uh, I mean, if, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So this is not a really great, you know, revelation for Peter and for his friends because they may have some problems coming as well. So Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about it like that, and then the Lord in turn rebuked Peter because Peter was doing the devil's work by trying to dissuade Jesus from doing God's will. Anytime that somebody tries to dissuade you from doing God's will, it's dangerous. You know that there's a big problem. Now, I believe that Peter is, or Jesus is not saying that Peter is the devil. Okay? He doesn't say, you are the devil. He, he, he turns and, and says this to Peter. Uh, and let me explain what is happening here. Jesus is not talking to the devil through Peter, uh, or the devil is not indwelling Peter, or some other mystical kind of thing. It's simply that Peter is talking like the devil in his flesh. Heaven had informed Peter about the identity of Jesus, but it seems that Peter was taking his cue instead of from heaven, from hell, when it came to being informed about and embracing the man-pleasing idea that Jesus should not die, even though there could have been some more direct devilish influence here. I want to be careful also to not excuse Peter. You know, we could easily say, well, Jesus says this, it must be that Peter was indwelt by Satan or that, which doesn't happen for people that believe. Um, it could be that uh, he took him over somehow or, or did something strange, mystically weird like that. And, and you excuse Peter from the whole thing. You can't excuse Peter. Peter said it out of his heart. Out of the abundance of Peter's heart, his mouth spoke, and it was sin in this case. We should not think that Peter's mind and desires are out of the picture as if Satan were totally controlling him. That's not the case. It was Peter's distaste at the idea of Jesus dying. Peter's desire for Jesus to live. Peter's rebuke of Jesus that is at issue here. 
it was Peter's fault. Peter really felt and thought those things because he cared more about the things of men than the things of God. This makes the text all the more applicable to us because our affections for the world are indeed ours. Our affections for the world are our fault. We can't say the devil or some mystical thing out there or you know, somehow disconnect ourselves from the flesh. It's ours when we sin, when we desire the things of the world. And we need to repent of those, not simply turn them on the devil. Well, the Lord in verses 24 to 28 moves ahead and tells them kind of in almost in a sense in response to what Peter's concern may have been that if they, if they persecute Jesus, they're going to come after us and it's going to be difficult. And so Jesus kind of gives them what, we, what I might call full disclosure about the Christian faith. Um, you know, sometimes a cult will kind of give you the, uh, the bait. And once you get in, then they tell you the full story about what you're believing. That's not the case in the Christian faith. It's all, it's all right here in the book. It's all available for you. You can read the whole thing ahead of time, uh, make your decision to follow the Lord or not. But uh, there's full disclosure here. And by, the, by now, of course, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you've probably figured out that that's not the way to win any popularity contests, is it? I wouldn't think so. If the religious leaders did bad things to Jesus, then their ilk will most certainly do the same to his followers. We've looked at that. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yours will be the kingdom of heaven, those sorts of ideas. So when, when the disciples heard that Jesus was going to suffer and die, this was not an abstract thing to them. You know, they weren't living in Western uh, you know, culture in the United States of America in the 21st century with no real fears of being persecuted unto death at this point. They were living in a time when if the religious leaders wanted to, they could put them in jail, they could behead them like they did John the Baptist. This was bad news for them, not only for Jesus. Peter is a model of all the disciples and for us as well. Uh, There are two main paths we can choose. We can follow the ways of the world or we can follow the ways of Christ. And if you choose to follow the ways of Christ, then there's going to be some potential for big problems. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you desire to be a follower of Jesus, that is to truly believe in him and walk in his way, then that means you're going to do the three things that are listed in this verse. Number one, you're going to deny yourself. Two, take up your cross. And three, you're actually going to follow Jesus. You're going to be his his disciple. First of all, deny yourself. What does that mean? One commentary helpfully pointed out, denying yourself is not exactly the same as self-denial like that sounds kind of weird, but it's not the same thing as saying, I could have three of those cookies, but I'm only going to have two. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to exercise some self-control. It's not exactly the same thing as that. It is the opposite of living a life of self-indulgence and autonomous self-rule. You know, if you wanted a certain career, a life of ease, money, fame, or fortune, you wanted to indulge your flesh with power or romance or notoriety, And when you come to Christ, you say no to those ruling desires and permit Christ the ruling throne in your life. This is a characteristic of Christians, somewhat different, but not entirely disconnected from this idea of self-denial in terms of saying no to yourself in regard to the simple pleasures of life. This is like a big picture thing, not a small self-denial. This is the whole of your life. You're saying, my life is not mine. It belongs to Christ and I'm going to follow him. You can be in the general mindset of the disciples denying yourself while at the same time enjoying some of life's pleasures and practicing a life in which you say no to your flesh. So yes, you deny, you you practice self-denial, you practice self-control, 
But you can also enjoy the pleasures of life that God gives. In fact, that's taught to us in Proverbs about our marriages. It's taught to us in Ecclesiastes about other good things in life. It's taught to us about labor, uh, to be pleased with the labor that God has given to us. I alluded to that uh, this morning in, in the issue of work and, and quote-unquote lazy Christians, which don't really exist. Um, you can enjoy those things. You can enjoy them judiciously. You can enjoy them thoroughly. You can be thankful for them. You don't have to be you know, upset about the fact that you have to, to work. If, if you are, then you're, then you're in a sinful attitude. Um, but you can enjoy those things. And I encourage you to, to do that. Life for a Christian is not just all bad stuff or self, um, you know, asceticism, we'll say. Uh, but you are certainly given to enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. That is okay. Enjoy your rest. Enjoy a good meal, a good food. Um, enjoy your family, time with family. Enjoy your hobbies and things like that. But you do so in a context of not indulging yourself and of autonomous self-rule. Your ruler is Jesus. Secondly, Jesus says, besides denying yourself, you take up your cross and follow him. The word cross here does not mean minor trial. If you were to look up the word cross in the dictionary, you would never get any idea that it means a minor trial. You know how people have said, my, I have my cross to bear, and it's some, some difficulty that they have in their life. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Cross means cross. Cross means the staurao. It means the thing that's on the wall behind me here, the cross of, of Jesus. It is an a, uh, instrument of death, of execution. Following Christ potentially means that you die for Christ. It's not too theoretical for some of those in our lifetime. In fact, we're told that more people have died for Christ in the last hundred years than have died for him in all the prior centuries combined. And you thought martyrdom was a thing of the you know, far past history, like, oh, we're all civilized now. We don't do those sorts of things. Uh, maybe broaden your scope from you know the local channel for news or whatever and see what's going on out there. China, Middle East, Russia, many different places in the world. Myanmar right now, people dying who are Christians. Uh, so this is not just theoretical, but it, at least potentially going after Christ means that you're going to die for him. Take up your cross, the instrument of death. Be ready to give your life for him. You've consigned yourself over to Jesus and you're at his disposal. That's what this means. As we said before, and I quote from my prior notes, therefore those who would follow Jesus must take up their cross, that is to be willing to die for him. Those who do so in effect, quote, lose their earthly life, but they will find life in Christ. In other words, when I say find it, they will experience it. Lose it means they will not experience that. You may not be called to martyrdom, but you may, and you are willing. You may not be called to as much shame or contempt as Christ was, but you may. I felt a little bit of a... I'll just give you a little insight into my, my thinking. I felt a little twinge of that today, uh, speaking at American House. Here I'm speaking, and there are people over here in the library with the door closed, four or five people playing cards and one other person sitting back there and people going through back and forth. And I'm just wondering, what are they thinking about what we're doing here? Singing these hymns and preaching the word of God. And, uh, you know, do they despise what we're doing? Uh, they certainly are ignoring what we're doing. They're treating it as if it's unimportant. And here we are teaching God's word, the most important thing that they could ever think of or learn, and they just treat it like it's nothing, it's not important. Um, politics are more important. They'd stop to watch the sports on the TV or, or something like that. Um, but, yeah, just think about that, you know, the, the, kind, of, the kind of contempt and shame and, and uh, things that the world has for the Christian faith. 
Well, anyways, not to be a pity poor us kind of thing. It's not the case. Uh, We have the greatest thing going, but we do have to face honestly that if we follow Christ, we're going to count the cost. Remember that uh, metaphor, that parable, count the cost? That's the full disclosure part of it. Um, You know, it's not that when you come to to share the faith with somebody that, you know, they say, uh, well, I mean, this means that I'm going to have to quit this and I'm going to do that. You don't want to mix them up and say, you know, yeah, you got to do that in order to get saved. That's not what what it is. But if they're saying, you mean if I follow Christ, I'm going to have to stop sinning and start living righteously? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, that's what happens. That's part of the cost of, 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 of being a, a disciple. You will, your life will totally change after you believe in Him. God will see to that for sure. Well, these aren't three separate things, denying yourself and following Him and taking up your cross. They're part of all, you know, one package, one description of the attitude of a Christian who does not seek firstly his own things, but instead prioritizes the things of, of Christ. Now, let me run through the whole list here of things that the Lord says, just to kind of put them into a small package so you can think about it. Are you like the Christian or the non-Christian? The Christian desires to come after Jesus. He denies himself. He takes up his cross. The Christian follows Jesus. The Christian loses his life. He will find his life in eternity. Christian loses the world because he's mindful of the things of God and he gains his soul. Is that like you? Or is this more like you, the non-Christian who does not desire Jesus, who wants to indulge himself, who scoffs at the cross, who refuses to follow Jesus, who desires to save his life? Are you like the non-Christian one who wants to, who will lose, rather will lose his life in eternity? You want to gain the world, being mindful of the things of men, and are you one who will lose his soul? Set those two side by side and ask you, which one am I more like, the Christian or the non-Christian? The situation on the first column of my table, which is in the notes, by the way, if you're able to get onto the website and look at them, they're there for you. The situation is far more desirable on the Christian column. It produces a far greater result, that is eternal life, and it fills a critical need in my life. The other way it just kind of goes down the way, the, the path of the world, and, and doesn't fill any need and just sends me on to an eternity apart from the Lord. Now, some people, in effect, complain that all this sounds too harsh, too hard, this discipleship stuff, this following Jesus. It must be another stage or a different phase of the Christian life. You know, the really important thing, they say, is that you just believe, just believe, and all will be well. But what are you believing? Are you believing some basic facts about Jesus, or are you believing into Him, into Him? I I always wondered about that debate when I first read about it, but it seems, in my mind at least, to be crystal clear at this point, if it's not to you, please talk to me about that. We'll try to work through it. Um, there is a difference between believing about Jesus and believing Him and entrusting your soul into His care. Verse 25, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's an irony here, isn't there? The thing that you want, if you're in the world is the thing you're going to lose. The very thing you want is the thing you'll lose. But if you lose it, you'll actually gain it back for Christ. If you want above all else to live and to live on your own terms, you will eventually do neither. You with me? There's a famous song that has the words in it, I did it my way. Right? You did. Okay, how did that turn out for you? Just how did that turn out? I did it my way is not going to work. But if you give your life to serve the Lord, you will really live, and you will have blessings beyond number beyond that. If you live for self, you'll ultimately fail, even if in the eyes of the world you seem to succeed. You might even seem to succeed marvelously, like some of our... our, uh, 
super famous or super rich friends that we, you know, people that we know about from the news and the media and social media and all of that. And you think, wow, they're stupendously successful. But they can't take it with them. Bottom line, if you want to save yourself the trouble of being a disciple, you're going to find a lot of trouble in the end anyway. And if you give up the life of comfort for one of potential struggle against the world, you will, in the end, gain all that you lost and much more. Peter said and elsewhere to the Lord, Lord, we've left our families, our homes and all that. And the Lord said in the regeneration, when the Son of Man comes, you'll have way more than that. Houses and lands and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. Your family will be far greater. Your bliss will be far better. Now, you might think of the things I'm saying here and think, you know, all of it is kind of like, all of it's delayed gratification. You know, like, I've got to endure all this bad stuff now. Christianity is so, you know, blah, and, you know, it's unpleasant and all of that. And finally, at the end, I'll get the reward. Super. You know, I'm not a fast food Christian. I can wait for the meal to come uh, onto the table. Well, I'm not saying that exclusively. In reality, someone who presently gives up his life to serve God will find out the real meaning of life and will be able to live it to the full. He will actually realize that he's found his life even before entering heaven. Do you have that sense? Any of you have been Christians for a while? You're like, I have something that I would never have had before, even though I've been rejected by some of my family or I'm not in the, you know, popular, uh, I'm, not, I'm not winning the popularity contests in school or, or work or whatever, but I found something that is far more valuable than those things right now. So there is an idea here that, that giving up your life, you actually gain it back sooner than even heaven begins, than eternal life. Those who want to make a life of ease apart from the sufferings of Christ are going to end up getting that suffering anyway. Verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, I've got too many goods. I want to do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build greater. And the Lord comes to the man and a vision and he says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will all these things be? You know, prepare your, your, your trust, your beneficiaries, you know, get everything signed and dotted on the, dot, uh, you know, on the dotted line and get it all done because you're going. Another danger to walking the Christian walk is money. The tragedy about pursuing life for self is that you may be the richest, you may be the most famous, the smartest in your little time and corner of the world, but if you do not know Christ, you'll lose your very soul. You will die in your sins and you'll be separated from God. And there's no profit in that. No profit in that. There's nothing you can trade to God for the eternal prosperity of your soul. Even if you had everything, even if you were the owner of the whole world and the galaxy and many galaxies beside, you would never be able to earn God's favor. No money, no good works, no looks, no kindness, no philanthropy, nothing else will do the job. And you're never going to get everything. So you're going to fall even farther short than that. Don't try to go down this futile path. Proverbs 24.20 says, There is no future for the evil man. New American Standard, I'm quoting there. Psalm 49.8, For the redemption of his soul is costly. In fact, it's so costly that it's impossible. That's Psalm 49.8. These also available on the notes on the website and printed out for you there. John 8, 24, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then I quoted this already, Luke 12, 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be that you have provided? We close with verses 27 and 28, and these give the critical reason why we should decide to follow Jesus. Look at 27 and 28, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to 
his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I've, I've read a difficult verse here, verse 27. Let me see if I can help us uh, get ourselves untangled here from our thoughts on it, because we're seeing this reward according to works, and we're thinking, uh-oh, that sounds a little bit not right. What's going on here? Well, the bottom line reason for following Jesus and living a non-worldly life is this. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to reward everyone according to their works. This means that he is going to judge you. Acts 17.31, there's a day coming in which the Lord has appointed him to be the judge. He's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Okay, You know that Jesus is going to judge you because you know that truth. Jesus rose from the dead. John 5.22, the Bible says that God has committed, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. So first, Jesus is going to return in glory. He's going to come, the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will be attended by those, those angels that uh, wouldn't come to take him off the cross. All of this certainly argues for the deity of Christ. I mean, he's coming with the glory of his Father. In the glory, is what does it say? <clears throat> In the glory of his Father with his angels. Jesus, not Mohammed, not Peter, not anyone else, is going to be the judge of all mankind. He was appointed to this office by God the Father. Okay, he's going to examine each one's works and reward them accordingly. Here's the thing. This may be uncomfortable, this teaching, for you, because you've been taught to believe that we are not judged by our works. Or maybe you've conflated two teachings together and thought, yeah, we're not judged by our works, but that's wrong. Remember, we're not saved by our works, but we are indeed judged in accordance with our works. Um, James 2.18 in that whole section there talks about faith and works and how does a man know that he has faith if he doesn't have works. The works demonstrate the reality of the faith. Or how about Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 37. Again, remember, very clear now. Be very clear. We're not, nobody's saved by works, but everybody will be judged by works. Let me unpack that a little bit. Matthew 12, 37. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words, obviously, are a kind of work, a type of works. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse number 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, clearly speaking to believers here, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Some say good or useless, but the point is it's about our works. Romans 14 and verse number uh, two, sorry, verse number 12, Romans 14, 12. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. And then in Matthew 25 is the lengthy passage of the sheep and goats judgment. And what I'm doing here, and in fact, I didn't actually include uh, Revelation. I'll get there in a moment. What I'm doing is showing different categories of judgment, which I'll mention, different people groups that are going to be judged. And uh, in this Matthew one, it's the people who are alive at the return of Christ, and the judgment is regarding how they treated God's people Israel. You know, those of them on the right, those of them on the left, coming into the blessing of the kingdom because, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me food, and when I was naked, you clothed me, and all that. Well, when did we do that, they said. Well, uh, whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, believers in God and in the Lord, and then the, the other ones. Well, there was a judgment there that had some connection to their works. He will examine each one's works and reward them accordingly. Listen to 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here, in fear. That seems pretty clear to me, doesn't it? 
that he's going to judge according to our works. There's the, there's the, there's the rub. There's where people just go off. The, you know, they get the, the cart of works before the horse of faith. They reverse them. And they say, well, look at all these verses that talk about works. It must be that we're saved by doing good works. No, you're saved by faith, and that faith is accompanied by, is, it generates in you that good work. Someone who has been born again will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ and will be rewarded in accordance with their faithfulness to the Lord in this life. Condemnation, or loss of salvation, is not on the table in the judgment seat of Christ. That's already been settled for those who have trusted in Christ. There's no condemnation now, therefore, for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Yet those who have trusted Christ will bear fruit in their lives, including good works and good words and sound doctrine. Others, those who have not been born again, will be judged where? At what judgment? The great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. Let's turn there just for a moment. In Revelation 20, you'll see this, too, is interesting. In Revelation 20, verse 13, it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, all these people, each one according to his works. Look at that. There it is. So the believer at the Bema seat judged according to what he's done, whether good or bad. The unbeliever judged at the great white throne judgment according to their works. The sheep and the goats judgment, Matthew 25, judged with works in mind as well. There are all those three categories of judgment uh, include that. Works are an important aspect. This all together makes our lives incredibly important as to what we do today. What you do matters. What you do matters. We do not believe in an antinomian system of doctrine that teaches that you can do whatever you want and then you'll be forgiven. No, the person who does whatever they want demonstrates that their wants have not been changed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I hope that's clear and I haven't confused anybody or caused anybody to think that I'm gone off the rails and teaching heresy here. That's not the case at all. It would be very clear. Salvation is by faith alone. But the faith that saves, as the Reformer said, is never alone. It always generates, it always produces good works. And those can be used as evidence that faith is real, Okay, working, if you will, backwards. All right. Now, if you stop at verse 20, uh, well, you, let's read 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And you say, well, what does that have to do with all this judgment stuff that pastor's just been talking about? Well, it goes back to the beginning of 27 where it says the Son of Man will come. And he's got to come before he's going to do this judgment. And so he wants to give them assurance that, yes, indeed, this is going to happen, and in fact, some who are standing here will not taste death until they see it, until they see something about it. And so if you stop there at 28, you say, man, this seems to be a real tough nut to crack. Uh, it seems to say the Lord's return is so imminent that it will be within the lifetimes of some of the disciples. But the Lord did not return in the lifetimes of the disciples. So what happened here? Well, I think you go down to the next verse. Forget the chapter number, okay? What's the next verse? Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, there's some of the disciples, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And so my explanation as has Many, many people have made this explanation over the years that chapter 17 is the fulfillment of that prediction in chapter 16, verse 28. What the text shows here is that Jesus is saying this, there are some of you standing here who will not die until after you have seen the kingdom glory of the Son of Man. They will see what his coming looks like 
in a preview format. Not what we might like in terms of the fullness of his coming. It would be nice if he'd come now. It would be nice if he already came and he wouldn't be in this sinful world that we're in, but that's not what happened. But the nation of Israel had rejected him and the kingdom was not going to start for a while. So the Lord gave them a preview of it and taught them in Luke 19 that a man went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So there's going to be a delay between his leaving and his coming back with that kingdom. That's Luke 19, 11 to 12. What we learn here is that three of the disciples do in fact see Jesus in his unveiled glory, exactly how he will appear when he returns with the glory of his Father, with his angels, and the reward coming to everyone according to their works. What about you? Would you harmonize it that way? Would you say, yeah, chapter 17 The first few verses there on on the Mount of Transfiguration is a fulfillment of what the Lord said. I'm totally comfortable with that explanation. And let me give you another verse that would help to support this. It's in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 17. Peter's talking about the reception of the revelation of God, and it says this. he, He says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. Boy, that sounds like a lot of the stuff we read in 1628. Let's go, let me read that again. 1628 in Matthew. There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then in verse 27, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will do that rewarding work. So back to 2 Peter. He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What did Peter say that he observed with his own eyeballs? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's telling his readers we saw exactly what Jesus said we would see in Matthew 16, 27, and 28. We saw the preview of it. We know it's coming. We just have to wait for it to be fulfilled. Peter was an eyewitness of the power and coming of Christ. They saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom just a bit early and not in its full manifestation. Full disclosure here. The Christian life is not easy because of the obstacles of the flesh, the world, and the devil. But you also know the relative cost of choosing to follow the Lord or not. You can pay now or really pay later. You know all of that ahead of time, so you can make a wise decision about what you want to do. I I thought about this quotation, which I used years ago in my work in in, um, hypotheticals and counterfactuals, it's an interesting thought to me, which kind of brings home the point that I'm getting at here with this idea of you can look at what Christianity is, look at the demands of it, look at what it says, look at what it calls you to believe and how it will cause you to act, and you can make a decision. Knowing the outcome of both paths is fully disclosed. The idea, as promoted by the philosopher Daniel Dennett, and I'm quoting now from a fellow named Nicholas Taleb, is as follows. What is the most potent use of our brain? Now, he's a secular writer, okay, but he wrote a best-selling book called The Black Swan. It is pre- here's the most potent use of our brain. It's precisely the ability to project conjectures into the future and play the counterfactual game. If I punch him in the nose, then he will punch me back right away. Or worse, he'll call his lawyer in New York. If you think about it that way, then you probably will do what? Not punch him in the nose, right? Because you're thinking, okay, if I take this course of action, that's going to be the outcome. If I take this other course of action, that's going to be the outcome. One of the advantages of doing so is that we can let our conjectures die in our stead. Used correctly and in place of more visceral reactions, the ability to project effectively, that is these counterfactuals, hypotheticals, frees us from the immediate first-order natural selection 
again, here comes his natural, his uh, secular thinking, as opposed to more primitive organisms that are were vulnerable to death and only grew by improvement of the gene pool through the selection of the best. In a way, projecting, that is thinking ahead about the outcome of our actions, allows us to cheat evolution. It now takes place in our head as a series of projections and counterfactual scenarios instead of us dying uh, prematurely. My argument based on what he's, this, this illustration is what I'm trying to use to help you understand that you too can use your brain to consider the counterfactual scenarios. If I follow Christ, things will generally turn out in this and such way. But if I don't follow Christ, what's going to happen? The Bible's very clear about that as well. So I exhort you then, use this knowledge of the choice that you have. Let your conjecture about what happens if I live for myself. Let that conjecture die in your stead. Let the thought of living for self perish. But don't you perish. Does that make sense? You think, if I live for myself, I'm going to perish. And then you say, nope, bad idea. I'm going to go this other way because I don't want to perish. I'll let the thought perish, but not myself because I'll choose to follow Jesus instead of following Myself. You know what's going to happen if you follow your own way. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to choose wisely, given what our Lord has taught us here. It doesn't profit us anything to gain the whole world because we're going to lose our soul and we won't be able to make an exchange in the end when we find out that reality is unbreakable. So, Father, help us to use our noodle to think rightly, convict our souls of sin, help us to come to faith in Christ instead of dying in our sins. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to see this portion of Scripture tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.